If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and my guest in this episode is Paula Daniels. Paula is the co-founder and chair of the Center for Good Food Purchasing, a nationwide program that uses the power of procurement at large public institutions to create a transparent and equitable food system that prioritizes the health and well-being of people, animals, and the environment. The center is currently partnered with 18 cities, 40 large public institutions, and is impacting more than 2.2 million meals a day and something on the order of a billion dollars of institutional food spending each and every year. To give you a sense of Paula's background before her work on the Center for Good Food Purchasing, she had a fascinating career. Starting out as an attorney, she went on to become a senior official in both city and state government. She was a senior advisor to Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa and a commissioner of the LA Department of Public Works, the California Water Commission, and the California Coastal Commission, among many other roles. Among a litany of awards and recognition for her leadership in food and water policy, in 2018, Paula was chosen as a Global Ashoka Fellow, which is an extremely prestigious award for social entrepreneurs. In this conversation, we cover a lot. The origin story of the Good Food Purchasing Program and how it came to be over an eight-year period, culminating in the actual moment when it almost fell apart the night before it was signed into existence. We talk about how to think about problems and systems holistically, how to design solutions to the problems you see, and very importantly, how do you collaborate with people very different than you to actually get important things done, even if you don't like each other? We talk about how business people should think about working with government, how entrepreneurs and government officials are different and how they can learn to have empathy for one another. And the through line of all of it, as she will explain towards the end, always being on the edge of our own becoming. So with that, I give you Paula Daniels. Paula, officially, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. I'm excited for this. Yeah, me too. Thank you for asking me. So uh, right before we hit record, you know, we were talking about uh, how how it's really fun that no matter who you're talking to and and what people's what people do in the world, that we all connect over certain things. And, and movies is one of those topics. So I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about some of the movies you love that inspired what you do. <laughs> you know, I have a bunch of favorite movies, but one of the ones that I think of as being somewhat, I would call it prophetic. Um, it, it, and it's uh, a post-apocalyptic movie. It's not going to be the one you might be thinking of. It's not Blade Runners, which is one of my favorite movies Damn. generally about needing to have, you know, a soul. But um, the movie that I find really most closely related to my work is, believe it or not, Wally. Really? That okay? I was yeah. trying to guess before you said it, and I had a bunch of guesses, and that was not on the list. <laughs> okay, so, so tell me, tell me why Wally? <laughs> but when you think about Wally, so it's a, a post-apocalyptic environmental disaster that it portrays. Mm-hmm. Um, animation has taken its place in the world and survives humanity, actually, um, because it's the you know it's the creation that you know we set into motion. And this in the in the Wally instance, it's there are some very lovable animated creatures and they're still trying to fulfill their role of farming. So they're working on trying to get the last living plant products forward. You can kind of imagine in the movie that um, industrialism has taken things too far to an extreme. And there are other reasons for, you know, this apocalypse, but then you go to where the humans are on this, (laughs) this, you know, this bubble of a spaceship that's run by robots 
and they're just fat. They're just consuming blobs <laughs> that have yep. no real agency. So the robots, you know, which were humanity's creation, actually start inspiring the fat blobs to remember who they were and start bringing life back to Earth. So I just thought it was, um, let's call it emblematic about the food system work that I embarked on about 10 years ago, because there were those problems, right, of um, industrialization maybe being too linear in its scale of just growth for the sake of growth. Um, without thinking about consequences and, you know, the, the commons really of, of food production. And then also it was about the consequences of that kind of consuming society and people getting too fat. So <laughs> I enjoyed the movie for, for what it was, you know, a love story between robots, but, <laughs> but then <laughs> and they are um, cute robots. Anyway, they're very cute. Wally. Wally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but when you, when you watch it, you, you see what the writers were getting at in terms of really having a pretty significant um, theme and, a, and a, a significant point to make about consumerism and environmentalism. Absolutely. So I, like that movie. I love that. I have heard you speak very powerfully uh, in some of my, the research I was doing about a woman who was, a, 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 I believe, a dear mentor to you uh, by mm. the name of Dorothy Green. And I was yeah. hoping you could tell, tell me a little bit about like, what role did she play in your life and, and what, did, you know, what impact did she have on you? What did you learn from her? Oh, wow. So I'm sitting right now in the Heal the Bay office in Santa Monica. Dorothy Green was the founder of Heal the Bay. And, um, it, I, uh, had been practicing law and I was a partner in a civil, civil litigation law firm. I was a trial attorney, but cared a lot about the environment and heal the Bay was just, uh, coming to an existence when I learned about it through a t-shirt <laughs> at, at a mall, you know, they were using t-shirts to get their message across at a time when that was kind of innovative and I started uh, working with the organization. And the main thing about it was it was a draw to me because I always cared about ocean protection. Mm -hmm. I'm from Hawaii. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's natural if you're from Hawaii and part Hawaiian, which I am, that there's um, just a deep connection to the ocean. And the ocean, you know, it's its own, uh, it's not merely that it has an existence that needs to be protected, but it has its own kind of, agency, if you will, in the world. Mm. Um, it, it, you know, it just comes from the Hawaiian culture, I think, too, of um, a polytheistic society from a long time ago where things were each, you know, the wind, the rain, the harvest, the, the creation of the world, they were all identified with different um, gods, you know, so um, people had a stronger connection to it. And that sort of passes down. But um, in essence, you know, I was looking at wanting to be involved with an organization that its mission was to protect the oceans. And Dorothy was the founder of that. So when I met her, she immediately recruited me to help. How did you uh, meet? With whatever there was. Um, how did I meet her? I, I volunteered. So I learned I was shopping in the Santa Monica Place Mall. There was a little, t you know, T-shirt stand on a cart, which was unusual. I said, what's this about? I saw the t-shirt. I said, that's great. You know, how do you get involved? I want to help. And, um, they, I got a piece of information on where to go to do the volunteer work. There was a big gathering at Loyola Mar Marymount. No, at Mary Knoll. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, I signed up and then pretty soon 
there I am, a partner in a law firm. I'm organizing um, tables for a children's march on the beach that was, you know, the march was to highlight the plight of the oceans and to gain support for it. So I got my law firm, my entire law firm involved, <laughs> including my husband, my soon to be husband. He, we were dating at the time. Um, and uh, we started, you know, just doing that work. So Dorothy appreciated my organizational capacity <laughs> <laughs> and, and started pulling me in. She goes, you're a lawyer. We need a lawyer to do blah, blah, blah. And I, I said, well, I actually I'm not an environmental lawyer. I was doing civil litigation. I was representing businesses. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I started going through the volunteer cards and pulling together all the lawyers who had volunteered and created a, a legal committee for Hilda Bay. So we did, you know, environmental work. We did some of the organizational work they needed. We did a whole bunch of stuff. So Dorothy, um, so I got to know her because she just tapped me, you know, and just wouldn't take no for an answer <laughs> and drove her ideas forward with passion. And the thing that I always really loved and admired about her is she always saw around the next corner. So there we were working on originally on the sewage treatment plant and trying to get it to a uh, full secondary, you know, to get it to the point where it was complying with environmental laws. And as we were nearing that point, um, Sorry, just, to, work. just to clarify one thing, when you say full secondary, what does that mean? Full secondary is an environmental standard. It means a full level of secondary treatment so that when it's, um, this um, discharge down the ocean. There's a three mile and a five mile pipe that it, you know, is discharged out into the ocean that it's been treated to the environmental regulation standards. Got it. Thank you. Um, and it hadn't been. So that had been the organizing principle of Heal the Bay. So we're, you know, finally reaching a point where we see the end is, you know, we're, we're, you know, getting to where um, Hyperion is operating you know, at full secondary. And she goes, okay, now we've got to move on to the next thing, which was stormwater. And I remember saying, <laughs> stormwater? Really? She what? goes, yes, there's an issue with stormwater. It's polluting. I was like, what? And she would also talk about, whoa, now we need to unpave the LA River. We're like, you're insane. You know, that could never happen. <laughs> but she just kept moving to the next thing. She also pointed out, you know, uh, a lot of issues with aquaculture, actually, and some of the, you know, the things to pay attention to in that area. Sure. She was amazing and was quite a mentor and really got me involved. And it actually changed my life because being involved with Heal the Bay, I got more deeply involved, ended up leading to me getting a political appointment. What is, um, when you think back on, on you know, the time you shared with her and, and all the work you did together, what about like what lessons from that do you carry yeah. with you today? Like I'm, she seems like a really important figure in your life and someone who yeah. you probably think about a lot as you're going through your day to day. What, yeah. what stays with you? Like what's the, what are the things you touch on constantly that you learn from your time together? Well, she was, um, you know, I think some of the things that resonated with me being a lawyer was she was very diligent and, um, researched her, you know, her issues. Well, she wasn't, she didn't, she wasn't just, um, emotional about them. She really put a lot of thought into it and a lot of intellectual rigor into it, believed a lot in science and worked well with, um, wanted to work with, um, the governmental entities. She, she never wanted to make enemies. So the whole point of the organization called heal the Bay, because it had a positive association, she wanted to convey that it wasn't about, um, being against or fighting or she didn't want to use fight words, although she fought a lot. She was very strong, but she didn't yeah. want that to be the ethos of the organization. She wanted it to be positive, find the most um, common ground um, to move, make change. And then she also really 
really invited creativity. So her original um, goal, her, some of her, her priorities in terms of putting the organization together were to brand it well. So she got some volunteer artists and we had Chai a day doing work for us in the beginning, doing some volunteer nice. um, ads. Yeah. And one of them I thought was really compelling. It was um, you know, sort of getting back to the point I was making about the ocean having its own life, you know, to respect sure. uh, an early ad. I remember and this is, we had some place on PBS, but it was also in movie trailer. You know, when you'd see trailers, you'd see this ad, mm-hmm. which was the ocean just rising up and saying, you've abandoned me. Sort of like a lover saying, I miss you. Where have you been? You've abandoned <laughs> me. Um, just, you know, having a soul, basically. Yeah. Um, so we had a lot of creative people around and she really encouraged it. Um, and it made it really special. So she's really good at understanding how to engage people uh, at the level of their heart and soul. Mm. Wow. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. You know, when I, when I was just listening to you talk about her, one of the things that I hear in that, that is, it just sort of is reminding me of a lesson that, um, I learned, uh, again, not too long ago was that, um, is, is the idea of when you're trying to create something new. And as you said, you wanted, she wanted it to be positive, like the language and the ethos of the organization to be positive. I think it's a trap that a lot of leaders fall into is to, they never convert from a negative motivation to a positive motivation. So they're always, mm-hmm. so they're, they're always against something. They're never for something. Exactly. And it's like, you can yeah. start, it seems like you can start with a, you can start against something like there's often a, a negative impetus, but it seems like to really go the distance um, and do it in a, in a sustainable, healthy way for people that there almost has to be this conversion process where you have to get beyond the initial yeah. negative spark and convert it somehow or metabolize it into yeah. something positive. What do you, what do you think about that? No, I think you're absolutely right. And, 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 and the idea of being for something is really key. And that really did shape my thinking about, you know, where I wanted to be in terms of the um, work that's being done. There's a lot of good work done in environmentalism, but that the place I wanted to be was the place where I was for something. You identify the solution and start working toward that. And I, I yeah. think it's, I think it's important, you know, to have a range of voices when you're trying to create change from 180 degree change, like from things being sort of really hardwired into where they are to a whole new place. But um, the space I find personally most productive is the solution space. If you can point toward that and get everybody working toward it, I think it's the best. That's perfect. So I think it's actually a really good, I want to segue slightly from, from that, which is a beautiful story. Thank you for opening up about that. And I want to talk, I want to hear a little bit about the, I'd love you to tell me, um, tell me the story, the origin story of what you're working on now with the, the Center for Good Food Purchasing. And, you know, I know its origin came out of the, the Food Policy Council, but if you would just tell us the story, the origin story of that. And then in particular, I'd love to hear what was like, what was the moment? What was it like for you when it finally became real, when it passed? Mm, yeah. Okay. Uh, gosh, how much time do we really have? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I had been appointed to a number of positions in government. So I was on the Coastal Commission, and then I was appointed to the Bay Delta Authority, which um, oversees the State Water Project, which irrigates the Central Valley of, of mm-hmm. California. And mm-hmm. it's in- incredibly important. It's the, the lifeblood of agriculture in the Central Valley. So I got to know a lot of agricultural producers, mostly large, and water districts there, and I'd been thinking about this issue of the, the, the tension 
um, that I see a lot between environmental interests and, you know, preserving the ecosystem and, and water um, for the ecosystem and the agricultural interests. So a lot of it was just around the farmers trying to make a profit in a setting that's not that easy to make a profit in. Mm-hmm. So my, my concept was like, well, how about if we help them um, make a profit in the way that we see could work both for the environment and for them, you know, organic was at the time I was thinking about this was a, still relatively new, but it was beginning to get some traction. Um, and that was an example of how you could have that organic seal. They could get a price premium for it. And then um, they could grow to that um, standard and make money while protecting the environment because the standard was set, but it hadn't taken, it still was, you know, getting a foothold and it's was still expensive and hard for people to afford that who don't have a lot of discretionary income for food. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about creating scale for the farmers. And my idea was to have a procurement program, like a, a like to use the purchasing power of cities um, in order to uh, direct, you know, to farmers like this, these are the send market signals. Like, can you grow in this direction? Because we'll buy it. Right. Mm -hmm. But you had Mm -hmm. to aggregate it. So that was an idea, but it sort of sat there and became the thing that I would talk about at cocktail parties or sometimes at lunches. And I'd sort of agitate about like, yeah, we should do this. You know, I talked to my friends in the environmental community about it. Everybody's so busy. Um, And I was actually working on in green infrastructure work. I was working on stormwater capture at the city of LA, I had become a public works commissioner and I was um, working on changing our building codes and ordinances to, to do more stormwater capture. Okay. Um, but so a friend of mine who wanted to put together, who was at city hall, he was a deputy mayor at the time and he wanted to uh, celebrate farmer's markets because a friend of his had started farmer's markets in Los Angeles 30 years before this time when he tapped me to come to a meeting. It's mm-hmm. 2009. And he mm-hmm. said, I want to do, I know you're interested in agriculture and trying to make some changes. I forget what you talked about. I just know you're interested in it. <laughs> Come to this mm-hmm. meeting because we mm-hmm. want to have a meeting about celebrating the 30th anniversary of farmers markets. And when you think about what farmers markets are, they were originally designed to help small farmers um, who are having a hard time getting to market and to, and to simultaneously serve low income communities who were having a hard time getting healthy food because there weren't enough grocery stores and the food was too expensive for them, the produce. So it was like closing that circle on that, that problem. So when I was invited to come to this meeting and the idea was let's have it be meaningful. Like we're, we're, we'll do more than just applaud the 30 years. Like, well, how can we take it to the next stage? And I thought, this is my opportunity to get my this idea. Is my time. This is my time. Yeah. And I had been, Boy, I'd been agitating for maybe five years already about this idea. Okay, so you've been stewing on this for a minute. <laughs> yeah, but just, you know, it's literally is one of those things in the back of your head, but I was really super busy with a bunch of other stuff, but you keep it there, right? And you sense like, this is the moment I'm going to start working toward mm. it. And so we had a group of people who were interested in uh, doing some food policy work. I started, you know, from there, like, um, bringing forward the idea of creating a food policy council, knowing that that would be an important stakeholder group that would be a precursor to developing these sorts of programs. So we did that. And we had the 30th anniversary of farmers markets on a September in 2009. It was about 10 years ago. Jonathan Gold came and he, um, 
helped promote the event. We'd had a salsa tasting contest. We had press there. We had the mayor announce the, um, the creation of the food policy task force. And he gave us the charge of the things that we should look for in terms of creating a food policy framework for the region. So that set us in motion. Hmm. And then from that, the task force that we put together did come up with a range of ideas, including, you know, agreeing that the procurement program is something important. A lot of them had thought of it as well. So it was great to start having that synergy. You know, I've always found that, um, whenever I have an idea, I find that somebody else might have two, if you keep talking about it, which just tells me it's an idea whose time has come, you know, it's, it's, it's time is coming. Even if it's only a handful of you, it's like you find each other and go, yes, because mm-hmm. it's just sort of out there. It's like molecules out there in the air, you know, that somehow come together to make this wonderful. It's sort of floating, it, floating in the ether and you guys all find each other. Yes, it can happen if you put enough energy into it to keep it a lot, you know, lit, right? Mm. To keep it as a light um, and keep it alive if you believe in it that much. But then things sort of, you know, fit into that for sure. So this was one of those. And we eventually did, uh, you know, all agree. We came up with 55 things that we thought needed to be done. They organized in eight issue areas. And one of them was a procurement policy for, for the city and for the school district and for major institutions. Hmm. So we set about um, doing the research for that, and it took two years of, of a lot of research uh, around, you know, and other policies around the country, um, two years of convening stakeholders, of thinking through how it can work, working with the those who would be affected by a procurement policy, like food service directors and vendors and farmers, like anybody else who would have to, who would be part of something that we implemented, getting their input on it. And then... Um, we finally were ready to go forward in 2012, right? Mm. So in 20, you know, 2009, we're, you know, we get everybody organized. 2010, we release our report with all these ideas, including that one. Then we start working on developing it. We get a basic concept together. We vet it like crazy, um, you know, through, again, everybody who would be affected by implementing it, including the city departments. And then we, we go forward with, a good food day in October of 2012. It's the last October we'll have together at City Hall. You know, mm. as Mayor Vieter, I was Mayor Vietergosa's at that point, I was his senior advisor on food policy because this mm-hmm. had gotten so interesting to him that he created a position for me in his administration at a senior level. And we were doing lots of stuff around the country. We were, um, he also was president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. We created a food policy task force there. And we're really starting to move this thing from, you know, having cities connect up and get engaged in what they can do for food policy for their region, what they can do for the rural communities, how they can engage in the agricultural economy in a meaningful way and seeing how their purchasing power can have an influence there. So it was finally ready after all our vetting. And the amazing thing for me was that there was no opposition. We, were, we went forward with an executive order and, and a council motion on October 24, 2012, which was a food day, which we were celebrating um, with a big public event. And um, it, I had done lots of things um, in legislation at the city and state level, and there's always opposition. Like I had mm-hmm. a you know change to the building code for green infrastructure. There's always opposition. You get it through because you work it out. But there was never any opposition to this. It was a truly kumbaya moment. So we had wow. all sorts of support 
yeah, it was great. We had all kinds of support from the business community, um, involved in food from farmers, from the American Heart Association, the American Cancer Society, from environmental groups, labor groups. We had, it was the most, from health organizations, it was the most unified um, presence of testimony and support from stakeholders that I'd ever experienced. And it was just really, it was a pretty wonderful moment. I want you to paint that picture a little bit more. So it's October 2012. You've been grinding away on this thing for like three years actively, five yeah. years before that of just percolating in your mind. So you've got yeah. eight years of built up, you <laughs> yeah. know, like, oh, just working on this thing. But so where, what was, was there a specific moment where it just like the floodgates open for you and you're like, wow, this is real. It's done. <laughs> yeah. Or, or well, at least that phase is done maybe. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was nice to have it adopted. There's, um, so we, you know, we had the mayor come and sign the executive order and until he signed it. And there were those like movie moments because I won't go into too much detail here, but let's just say I got a call at midnight from somebody saying, what about, (laughs) and Uh it wasn't opposition. It was just sort of a technical issue. And I was like, Oh my God, after all this, (laughs) (laughs) this is like midnight midnight going into the day. (laughs) Yes. Uh, no, this is like, can we talk this through? <laughs> That's, and I'm not, I, I can't give you the details. I, this, I just, okay, I get it. I partly don't even remember it. Um, I just remember the feeling of, you're kidding me. <laughs> this is not happening right now. But <laughs> kind of working it out. It was really a technicality, you know, a, a procedural technicality. So it's boring to even relate it, but to say that it might have scotched the whole thing. So... <laughs> And I had a bunch of those moments going up to it, like somebody saying, but what about this? Like, okay, we'll fix it. And we finally like, you know, so I don't have much sleep. Um, And there's hundreds of people coming to this event to testify for us and help celebrate. And we have like food and we have, you know, speakers and entertainment. We got a lot going on. And then we have the mayor sign it. He signs it. it to me. That's like, oh my God, it was just such a great moment. And then we go in and testify in front of council because we simultaneously had a council motion. And so we're on TV. You know, it's like it's a televised hearing. Um, All the council members unanimously support it. And I can just say it just felt really great. It just felt really great. Trying to imagine like what do you can you remember like when you think back to that moment where you saw him, you know, pull out the pen and he sits down and he signs the he signs the thing. What did you what was like what was going through your mind or what what did you feel in that moment? Um, Pretty relieved and uh, and happy and appreciative. I definitely appreciated his confidence in this. It had been a lot of work to get to that point because for these things to happen, you have to have, it feels like a thousand conversations uh, a week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm only slightly exaggerating, but it, it is a lot of persuasion. You know, you have to you know run the gauntlet of legitimate scrutiny and do your due diligence. It's fair that people ask these questions. I'd certainly thought through a lot of it myself, but then as I was presenting it to you know the rest of the team, uh, in the mayor's office and, you know, making sure like he understood it, the mayor himself and answering his questions about it. Um, they're all fair questions. So there'd been a lot, a lot of that. So, uh, for me, like I'd have a tendency to, Oh, I, I guess I learned this from being a lawyer. I'll 
breathe a sigh of relief when the ink is dry on the signature page yep. and not until then. And this was definitely one of those moments. And having that happen was just, um, it was pretty amazing. It was great. And then you go, okay, and now we got to do the work. <laughs> <laughs> now it's real. Uh, yeah, okay. the, the idea has been, okay, now we got to actually do it. Well, so after that, we then took it to the school district, which was our um, a really key objective because they serve, their food budget is $150 million a year. And they were really a target. And this is uh, LAUSD, I think? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, LA Unified School District. So they serve about 750,000 meals a day. They have a $150 million food budget. They're the big player. They're the biggest food service provider in the region. They're the big player in terms of food. So the month later, we took it to LA Unified School District. And that was a great moment too. And that, you know, having both of those back to back was terrific. It was just exciting. I mean, you know, a lot of what it felt like. So just to clarify one question. So when, when, when the mayor signed off on this and it became real, yeah. did that, um, did that obligate the school district to do it? Or is it that now you had the legitimacy and then you could go effectively pitch it to the school district? Yeah, because of the way our government is structured in, in, at L, in LA, the city and county are not combined. You know, so the mayor doesn't have jurisdiction over county entities and the school district is a separate governmental entity. That's not true in other places. So you might hear how the mayor of New York has directed the school district to do X, Y, or Z. In New York, the mayor had control. In Chicago, the mayor had control. In LA, the mayor did not. I mean, that was something Mayor Virgosa tried really hard to do in the very beginning of his term because he wanted to improve education for students. He was trying to get more control over the school district. Um, mm, okay. But we didn't. What we had was persuasion. Mm-hmm. So the mayor was able to adopt it by executive order for the city. The council motion um, also confirmed that it would be adopted for the city and also assured that we were six months from terming out. So it also assured that they would carry it forward, which they did. Yeah. So I have to say, I guess the best way I can describe it is it feels like surfing. It feels like you've been in the water, you've been paddling really hard, and you caught that wave and you had an amazing, you, it, you rode it. That's mm-hmm. what it felt like. That's what it felt like. That is an, I, know, I know that feeling and that is an incredible feeling. So well, well deserved and, and congratulations, of course. I mean, retroactively. Thank you. It was a, it, it felt right. You know, like everything lines up and it was a good wave and a good ride. Yeah. So it's, it's been seven years or so that, you know, since, since that, since that fateful day in October, 2012. <laughs> and so tell me where I, I know the things have scaled tremendously since then, and it's been quite a journey. So tell me about what's, what has changed since then? You know, where, where is the organization today in terms of yeah. the center for good food purchasing? And, and what were some of those big um, milestone moments getting here from, from there? Yeah, well, so we did, I mean, uh, I mentioned that we were part of the U.S. Conference of Mayors Food Policy Task Force, which I was, you know, pretty much running at the time, or, you know, in a very leadership role of at the time, and we were sharing a lot of best practices. So we had, when we adopted it, I shared what we had done and developed with my colleagues around the country. They were very interested in it, um, but it was a program at the time of the L.A. Food Policy Council, which I'd also created, right? So I created the LA Food Policy Council as an initiative of Villaragosa, uh, Mayor Villaragosa, and but created it as a nonprofit so it could survive past his administration. There's lots of ways to structure initiatives, and I deliberately wanted this one to outlast us 
And so I started setting it up as a nonprofit and starting to use some of Dorothy Green's, you know, um, mentoring uh, wisdom in creating something positive, <laughs> creating something cross-jurisdictional, creating something with decision makers, you know, creating something that had a good, you know, creative vibe, you know, for, for outreach um, in bringing in a lot of stakeholders. So um, we created a nonprofit. But so when other uh, cities around the country were interested in the program, they didn't feel they could adopt the LA Food Policy Council program. So we realized after time that we should probably pull it out and create it as, as its own entity. So we did that in 2015. We created the Center for Good Food Purchasing. We moved the program from the LA Food Policy Council to the center. So Alexa Delwich, who was my my staff member, my key staff person when I was putting the LA Food Policy Council together, and she'd also been, I'd asked her to lead, um, you know, we had a bunch of different programs. We had a Healthy Neighborhood Market Network program. We had a bunch of other programs. So Alexa was the lead on that program under my supervision. So then we pulled it out and um, created the Center for Good Food Purchasing in 2015. And we immediately started getting interest um, uh, from around the country. Oakland was interested. Um, Austin, Texas was interested. Soon we had San Francisco interested and they adopted it. Uh, shortly after that, Chicago. Um, and we were working with partners in these different places. So we're now at a place where we have 18 cities, 40 institutions, and close to a billion dollars worth of uh, food purchasing information enrolled in our program. So we're in Chicago, New York, Boston, D.C., um, and in you know many other places around the country. No, that's I think it's so interesting, and I want to explore that a little bit. If someone's trying to to build, uh, whether it's a new company or a new program intervention, and they need to think about working with lots of different people, lots of different stakeholders, communities, regulators, how what would you recommend to that person? How should they actually think about approaching that kind of work? Uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's so different for every situation. It's, it's unique as every family is unique. You know, every Thanksgiving dinner is unique, right? Mm -hmm. and, and every family is unique. And uh, I know there's a great quote on it that I'm, I'm not going to remember well. It's a Russian quote. Um, I, th anyway. I think I know the quote. It, uh, yeah, came up in a, in a, it came up in a, in one of the episodes that just actually just happened to go live. It's from Anna Karenina. And it's, I believe it's all, all happy families are alike and every dysfunctional family is unique in their dysfunction. Something like it's something to that effect. <laughs> We're going to have to figure it out. <laughs> but basically the point of it, the quote is that it's mostly uniqueness, right? And so every situation is like that. But I think what is, uh, probably most important in every situation I've been in and every work I've ever done has always involved working with people because you, that's really the only way you can get anything done. You can't get ever get anything done by yourself ever. Mm -hmm. You know, you need, it, it's a team. So whether it's you and your small team, which then expands to the broader team, it's always going to happen um, more through teamwork and through village work. I'll call it that. Then, um, just thinking you go on, just like snap your fingers and make it happen. So um, it, it, I think that I, I think having honest respect for whatever the position is that the person is you're talking to, like what their concerns are, what their interests are, what their particular unique type of humanity is, like who mm. are they? 
How do they orient themselves to the world? How do they process information? What do they need to make decisions? Um, and everybody's different that way <laughs> in, in every, every way. Everybody manages it differently. So as best as you can to, you know, to deal with each person as a complete human being and to really respect that, I think, is, will always work in your favor, no matter what the situation. And one of the things that I find a little disappointing sometimes is that government, when somebody's in government, it's like some veil was pulled down over their face and people just see the mask. Like, that's a bureaucrat. And they assume <laughs> certain things about that human being that they just, that are, it can be harm, you know, harmful to both of them and definitely the relationship if they let that assumption go too far. Um, I mean, I was in many situations before I started doing this work um, with the Good Food Purchasing Program where I saw people yelling at some junior staffers in a, in a you know, a, a stakeholder meeting um, about, around a project as if he didn't have feelings. You know, it was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And I stood up there and said, let me, let me introduce you to Derek. Do you know that Derek likes to play the guitar and some of his favorite music is you know, whatever it was, I don't remember. And then he likes to grow pumpkins. <laughs> and, and I started telling the story of this human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people just forget that sometimes. So I know that sounds simplistic, but I think it definitely happens when people have a role to play in government, that they're seen for their role and not for their person. Mm. So how do you coach somebody? You know, I'm sure you've had junior staffers who have struggled with this at times or, or people who have come to you for advice. You know, they're trying to get something done and they're yeah. maybe maybe they're frustrated. Maybe they just don't like the person they need to work with, but yeah. they need to work with them. How do you how do how do you actually like if you can think back, you know, don't have to give away any details that you don't feel comfortable with. But if you can think back to a case or two where you've actually coached somebody through this process, what how did you advise them? What, what what were the things that they needed to do differently to actually see that whole person and be effective despite their differences or frustrations or feelings or whatever the case may be? You know, I mean, a lot of times it, it's a matter of paying attention, you know, and, and having conversation, uh, a little bit of conversation in the beginning before you get right to the point, but also just trying to sit and listen and talk through what some of the cues were that they got from the person and help them understand it. And, you know, I'll just say too, sometimes even that doesn't work. You know, you can try to be a real, uh, have real genuine human to human interaction and it doesn't get you anywhere. So then you have to start thinking about how else to influence that person. Hmm. Right. If you're, if it's about changing their mind, like who else might influence them? Hmm. Um, what, what else might work or what other methods? So if the one-on-one isn't working, could you ask for a meeting of a larger group? Could you do something larger and have them come? So you give them lots of points of interaction so that they can uh, really, the goal is to get them to understand more. Um, and the more to me, like the more you can educate, the better. So I guess I'll give you a different example, which is when I was trying to get the city to change their thinking about, this is, I'm on a key official in the city at the time. I'm taking you mm-hmm. back to that moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I have jurisdiction over this area, which was stormwater capture. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to get them to do it differently. They were just, you know, funneling it down these drains and it wasn't, you know, it could have soaked back into the ground through green infrastructure would have been better, but they just weren't wanting to do that. So instead of like just working just at the top level, I said to the top level folks, 
give me your middle managers. I want them to come to a meeting and I'm going to start by figuring out what, what the resistance is, like why they have, are having a hard time changing their mind about that. So I sat, spent a lot of time sitting with them, hearing what their concerns were about, you know, making sure things were safe for people. So it wasn't that they were, you know, completely opposing green infrastructure. They just were worried about safety and they were worried about other things, right? So Mm -hmm. how do you break through what those issues are? So I just started bringing in, um, I created a group called the Green Streets Committee and I started bringing in their peers from other jurisdictions who had dealt with the issue. So it basically became like a class. Mm. So they could talk to their peers and they were able to ask their peers like, well, how did you deal with this issue? How did you deal with that issue? So their fears were overcome. Mm. And usually it's fear-based thinking. You know, they, they don't necessarily want to mess up, you know, so they're worried about something. Mm-hmm. If you can figure out what that something is and then, you know, give them examples of how it's handled differently, then you can start making a difference. We did in my time there, we did turn around their thinking 180 degrees. Hmm. So they, they are very much champions of green infrastructure now. That's fantastic. My assumption based on some of the other conversations I've had with guests on this on the show has been around when it comes to changing specifically culture, but also somewhat like thinking around it, right? If organization, I'll just say like the general thinking of a, of a group of people or an organization around an issue. Um, yeah. and that is often represented and manifested in the culture of that organization that it's like a slow process. And often my assumption is that it's not that it's impossible to do a 180, but it's really hard. And often it's in stages, right? You know, you'll, if you're going, if you're going to the right, you have to go up a little bit, up a little bit, up a little bit. And then like you eventually make your way back the other way. But it sounds like you were able to turn it around a lot faster. And I'm curious, how do you think about that? If you need to like try to redirect a culture or a group of people, how do you, how do you actually think through that process? How do you do that? Well, I don't know how fast, I mean, it took a couple of years, I will say for, um, the green streets committee too. So it took some time. It does take time. There's no question about it, especially if you're working with government. I mean, I think the thing I love about entrepreneurial thinking is that it's pretty nimble. If when you have, all right, so let's go back to our surfing analogy. <laughs> I, and I've used this before, but I do think that I do think that entrepreneurs are like surfers, you know, whether they actually surf or not, I think they're more like surfers in this mm. sense. They are uh, really ready to deal with uncertainties. So they know they know how to they have your basic skills, but they need they kind of know where the beaches are. But they have to have their equipment, like the surfboard, and to be in the water. And then mm-hmm. everything else is uncertain. Like you have no idea how things are really going to go that day. So they embrace uncertainty and they're just sort of ready when the moment mm-hmm. comes. You feel the wave, you go. Most people in government are more used to baseball, <laughs> whether hmm. they're baseball fans or not. So baseball has a lot of rules. Baseball has you know rules for where you can stand for how long. Um, what's in, what's out, what's the right height, you know, for the mm-hmm. ball, lots of precise rules. So it's mm-hmm. an amazing sport. But so you have entrepreneurs and baseball players in the room, you're playing different sports, right? So mm-hmm. uh, entrepreneurs are more like surfers, government people are more like baseball players because they're like, well, what's the rules? Like what's in, what's out, you know, mm-hmm. what's, where are safe, the lines? what's not, yeah, where are the lines? But it's, it's legit. You know, you need to have that for, for government to operate effectively, but you also need to make room for this other kind of entrepreneurial thinking. So, you know, one of the things that 
um, executives are, particularly in the political offices, is they bring in people who are more willing to deal with uncertainty and risk. So those offices are going to be more likely to be entrepreneurial in their thinking. Mm-hmm. So, so you can kind of, you know, match it up. So sometimes you just got to help. If you need somebody to take a risk, who's not a risk taker, you mm-hmm. need to help them see what the path might be in that risk. Right. And you need to help explain it and to, and to see, to kind of minimize risk is kind of where it is, I think, for some of those thinkers. And minimizing risk sometimes can come from just understanding something more, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, it totally does. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to, I want to shift gears slightly here and ask you about is um, one of the things that I, I think you are, you and I are both quite interested in, and I'm curious to hear just what your thinking is about it today as a jumping off point is the idea of the circular economy mm-hmm. and regenerative systems. I want to go explore that idea and what's happening today that you're seeing and what's like catching your attention in that space. Mm-hmm. Oh, I am so interested in bugs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell me about bugs. I just, I am fascinated by this concept of insects as a form of protein um, in a way that makes uh, complete sense. Like, it, you know, it's a less impact less impactful from an environmental standpoint and probably more easily manageable. So, and it can really tie into the circular economy and food. So I've been learning over the past uh, few years about food waste being used to grow insects for various types of feed. So food waste could be used to grow um, insects that people could eat. So crickets, I mean, that's been happening for a long time in cultures like Oaxaca, I think is very, big on crickets. They have cricket tacos and so forth. And other parts of Asia, the humans eat the bugs directly. And I knew somebody who was using um, spent uh, brewer's yeast from the craft breweries to grow crickets. And then he would roast and grind them into flour and they'd be part of protein bars. And it's actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that. But then there's also just an awful lot of protein that goes into animal feed around the world. It's a huge industry. And there's a lot of potential for insects to be part of that process. So insects for animal feed, particularly for aquaculture, um, it's an exciting area and really taking off. And I find that the fact that we could take all our food waste, grow insects, have it be a more environmentally sustainable way to feed farm fish, as well as uh, all the other animals that we're rearing, I think is... um, could make such a huge difference. Totally. So actually, I realized I want to back up a quick second. When you think for someone listening to this, who's not familiar with the idea of the circular economy or Mm -hmm. a regenerative system, Mm -hmm. what does that mean to you? Yeah. Well, you know, it it sort of means doing things the way that they were done in my grandfather's day or before then, where you pretty much use everything in the cycle. So it's, it's cradle to cradle versus cradle to grave. Great book. So what's that? I said great book, by the way. William McDonough, right? Yeah, it's a fabulous book. And and he really pointed that out really well. So it's making full use of everything. And my grandfather, you know, who lived on Maui his whole life, we're from Maui way back, but he would reuse everything. Like he would compost, he would have gray water. Nothing ever went to waste. It was always put to use. So in Mm -hmm. some ways, there's no such thing as waste. So in a circular economy, nothing is wasted. Waste means nothing because it's always reused. 
Um, whereas what we became enchanted with in the 20th century as a culture was uh, a more linear process. And, and we became enchanted with our engineering prowess and industrialization, but it's extractive and it's one way, you know, so you pull mm-hmm. it out of the ground or wherever else you're pulling it out of tends to be the ground, but you pull it out of somewhere, use it and then throw it away. And you've got a lot of problems that you've created in, uh, along the way because you haven't closed the circle. Mm-hmm. So by reusing things like um, even the idea of stormwater that I mentioned, it was to take stormwater and run it over the, um, the bioswales over grasses that would nourish the grasses and replenish the groundwater that's circular when it comes to water. So you can mm-hmm. do the same with, with just about anything that you think of, but definitely with food, the idea that we're, you know, really using up the soil and everything that's in it to grow food that we then just throw away is linear and wasteful because if we're throwing it away, it just sits in a landfill and doesn't really do any good. It actually creates methane emissions, which aren't great. So if we instead were to use that waste in some ways, like repurpose um, ugly food or a perfectly sized food, um, but then also find something that would um, be made out of that food waste. Some people think of compost, but I think if you can Mm -hmm. make other materials out of food waste, even better. So if you can make more food out of food waste, you've just created a circle. Mm -hmm. It's gone cradle to cradle. Totally. So when, I, I, so this is one of the ideas that I, I love and I'm so happy you said you brought up cradle to cradle because that was one of when I think over the last five, 10 years of my life, that was one of the books that has most impacted my thinking. And like, I remember uh-huh. it was like getting hit, hit upside the head with a baseball bat when I read that book. I was just like, uh-huh. whoa, this is completely different, you know, way of thinking about the world. And then going right. on to read the, their follow on book, the upcycle was similarly, you know, deeply inspiring. So I think what, I, where I'm going with this is, um, I think this is going back to your, your fantastic, uh, reference, the Victor Hugo quote of nothing being more powerful than an idea whose time has come. <laughs> why is this the right time? Like why, is, why now? And how does someone who likes this idea engage with it? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, I think the awareness of the issue has just really taken hold that it like, particularly for food waste. Um, I want to give a lot of credit here to my good friend, Dana Gunders from NRDC, who uh, worked on a report that um, I remember food waste was not on people's radar. She released the report. Um, it was, you know, uh, published the New York times did a story on it and boom, it became what everybody was talking about. So an mm. idea whose time has come, but she was catalytic. So that's mm. one thing that I think people can have faith in is that, even though they may feel they're at a point where they're maybe a lone voice in that in the discussion, they actually can catalyze a lot of other ideas that can move it forward. So Dana was tremendous in, in bringing that idea forward and, and quantifying the level of problems we're having from food waste. So the awareness of these issues, I've, I've never seen it be so great. And there's so many companies, there's so many, uh, so much, it's so many people everywhere in government and nonprofit organizations who are willing to, to work on these issues. And we also have the ability. I think that the tools we developed in the 20th century, um, we were applying them differently then, but, but now we know how to use them in a way that really supports our values of, of, you know, nurturing the environment versus extract, you know, merely extracting from it, um, Mm -hmm. and being respectful of people 
as well as planet. So um, I think a lot of the the tools can be put to good use. And there's a lot of opportunity for innovation in that space because there's a lot of people searching for the particular solution for their end product of food waste. So one of the things that I think has been promising over time is matchmaking software, right, to connect um, the pounds and pounds of imperfect produce with somebody who might do some value add, like make jams out of them or otherwise, you know, applesauce, apple pie, whatever, you know, just mm-hmm. probably who cares what they look like. It's going to be cut up anyway. Yeah. So, so the best banana bread comes from really ugly bananas, by the way, they are almost like right. they're super dark brown. And they look like they're about to rot. That's actually the best for banana bread. That's right. They're super ripe. Yeah. Um, so I think all those things are, are, are more possible and it's just only left to someone's imagination to, to figure out a way to connect the dots. So it's a matter of seeing, you know, where the gaps are and connecting the dots and there's eagerness. Um, there's funding, (laughs) there's all sorts of investments in it. It's a great time to innovate in those areas. One of the things that is very clear to me in the, from the conversations you and I have had so far, even outside this conversation we're having now, is you are clearly a, a holistic thinker, a systems thinker, right? You, you're not just looking at the particular situation. You're looking at the system around that situation and what are the okay. causes? What are the effects? Um, if we do this, then what happens? What happens after that, okay. et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you teach the people who you work with, you know, like your junior staff, how do you teach them to think that way? And how do you actually implement those ideas and put them into reality? Mm. You know, I think a lot of them come to us because they are that way anyway, I have to say, (laughs) because, um, I mean, I think they're attracted to the enterprise because they see what it does do for the system. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think part of what I find important is to continue to have the broader discussion and you can get lost in the detail of moving uh, something from point A to point B or responding to the 100 emails or, you know, whatever it is um, and get lost in details. But so we do always have the conversation and we do always remember the bigger picture and and have opportunity for um, exploration of ideas. Um, we used to do a whiteboard. We used to check in periodically uh, was my favorite um, thing to do where we every month we would um, use the whiteboard and say, okay, what are we doing now? Um, and w- what of these things is going well? And what are we not doing that we would like to be doing? And what are we doing that we don't think we should do anymore? <laughs> right. Okay. So just kind of doing that gut check. And usually when you ask, or oh, what are we not doing that we think, you know, we'd like to be doing more of that's kind of when you get into that picture of what's the wraparound here of this day to day that we're moving forward. And that's, that generally does invoke the systems issue. Cause we'll, if we're already, you know, sort of attuned to being mindful of it, like what are we hearing from folks about what they need that we're not addressing that will trigger the need to think about, you know, what the whole system is, at least our conversation around it would be that way for sure. Mm-hmm. Are there any particular um, tools or approaches you use in your work to think through and understand a system? That's a really good question. I don't know. What what do you think of? Tell me some of your ideas. Um, I'm sure you've heard some. Yeah, sure. 
Yeah, no, no, I, I definitely probably probably too many. Actually, <laughs> I think the the hard part of is actually in a lot of these things is figuring out which tool do you pick out of the out of the toolbox because uh, there's so yeah. many available. Um, let's see. So one that came to mind when when we were before we hit record, you know, you were discussing how certainly for a lot of the important issues that need that need to get worked on and solved, whether it's in a food in food policy or you know pick your pick your favorite issue here. Um, there is sort of inherent tensions that have to be managed, right? Like, for example, the, the tensions that arise if, if between the private sector and good regulation, right? That's, that's an inherent tension in capitalism, frankly. Mm-hmm. And when, when you said that, what came to mind was um, a tool set that I learned about. Um, I'm blanking on where I learned it. It'll come to me in a minute. But basically called polarity Ma- mm. management i believe i like guess polarity management maybe polarity mm-hmm. mapping i can't remember mm. and it's this idea that there we approach at least historically this this hit me like a ton of bricks because i've always i'm very problem solution oriented like you were describing where it's like mm-hmm. i see a thing what's the solution how do i solve it mm-hmm. um and it turns out that this idea of polarities or i also refer to them as like think of them as paradoxes they're mm-hmm. they're not solvable their mm-hmm. inherent built-in interdependent tensions that can't be solved. They can only be managed. And when you manage mm-hmm. that tension well, you get you minimize the downside and maximize the upside. When you mismanage it, you get mostly downside. So that's mm-hmm. an example of one that one that comes to mind um, just listening to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't say... I mean, it's good to hear about that. I can't say I've thought of tools. I think, I guess I probably just am a systems thinker. So my conversations tend to be in that vein. So mm-hmm. when staff are working with me, that's how we roll. <laughs> it's, it's what we talk about, you know, it's, it's how the conversations go, but it would be, you know, it'd be helpful to have tools. I just hadn't, honestly, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just, this kind of just goes to the idea with the podcast, always trying to find like ways, how do we make this useful and applicable where someone who is interested in the idea can, can run with it. Right. Um, two other, yeah. two other tools since, since you asked that I've heard of and engaged with directly to some extent that I, I, I don't know them well enough to say they're slam dunks, but they seem legit and I want to work with them more and see, you know, see what, what emerges. Um, one just as a resource that I've heard recommended a lot. And I finally read is, um, I believe it is the book called thinking in systems by, I want to say it's Donna Meadows. I don't remember the exact name, but I'll put it in the show notes. And the other one is a, I, I'm pretty sure he's writing a book right now because it looks like he's been posting all of his drafts for the last two years. There is a guy who I have mad respect for based out of the UK named Simon Wardley, who oh, I yeah. think everyone... Do you know Simon? You know of Simon? I've heard of him. No, keep talking. I've heard of him. Okay, no. so have you seen, seen any of the stuff he's been working on with like this, the whole all his strategy work? I think so. <laughs> okay. I want to so, know more. <laughs> okay, so... so um, this this guy's fascinating to me. If anyone knows him and can get him on this podcast, I would be deeply in your debt forever uh, for anyone who's <laughs> listening to this. But um, so he has a, a fascinating story. He has a background in technology, and um, I'll and I'll link to the, some of these in the show notes. But long story short, he has developed a method for doing systems and strategy mapping that mm. I find to be totally innovative and fascinating, and it. I've read a lot of strategy stuff because, you know, my interest in business over the years and, and leadership, et cetera. And most of it is crap, frankly. Um, <laughs> and his stuff was the first time I read or came across any, anything that was really about strategy where I went like, holy crap, I think somebody cracked it. 
Like I think I think this guy is nailing something here in, in a way that mm-hmm. I haven't heard or seen anyone else do. So um, I'll link to this in the show notes, but I, I think if anyone's interested in systems thinking, strategic thinking, especially um, yeah, I will link to the drafts and in, in his YouTube talk. I will say the drafts are very long, but the payoff is tremendous. So it, like I can't wait for the, for the, for the final book because it's clearly on the way to a book. I actually am seeing it here. So you know what? You're making me realize how I how that I have tools that I didn't realize I had. I guess, but that I okay. how I use that with my staff. It's that I mentioned the whiteboard and I mentioned the exercise we go through. But um, usually I map it out. It's usually okay. a series of circles and lines and diagrams. So it just shows a flow. Mm-hmm. That I think you know creates the the context, the system context. So I'm I'm looking uh, while we were speaking, I looked it up. So I'm I'm looking at his mapping, and that looks so familiar to me. <laughs> it's like yeah. what I do, you know, like with with yeah. my and I have conversations. I say, well, it's this way. So I'll draw something out, but then I'll have well, one of the other team members draw it out too. So you can see how they're thinking about things and how I'm thinking about things, and then it sort of um, matches up somehow. So I think a, a visual is a really good exercise. Mm. We might even map out, so we were talking once about how to sort of shift roles in the organization, and so we mapped it out. You know, we, what are we doing, and where do people go? How, what's the overlap mm-hmm. like? Because it's Venn diagrams, something like that. Um, mine are always circles and arrows, Somebody else has boxes, you know, that mm. move along. So, um, yeah, but so this is helpful. It looks really great and fun. To try yeah, and it's, it's a, I will say it is a deep rabbit hole when you read the drafts. And I spent a solid month reading them all like a year and a half ago. Totally worth it. Changed the way I see the world completely. Uh, I'll link to this in the show notes. And um, if anyone's interested in this, I highly recommend checking it out. And I cannot well, it, wait for it for the book whenever it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it gives you a bigger picture thinking. And it also invokes something other than just words, right, to describe things. So it helps use like a lot more of the cylinders that you have in your brain. The the obvious piece of value, at least that I went to was like, oh, great, this will help me understand this better. But probably the bigger piece of value is the communication, the interaction around the ideas that it enables between people and stuff like, okay, I drew a map and then you independently drew your own map. And then we put our map side by side and we talk about what's different and why. Exactly. Exactly. We're both getting, we're all getting smarter. Yeah. And we're learning a little bit more how the other person thinks and you know, where, how to fit that in. And we, we do, we do whiteboards all the time, um, all the time. So that's, I guess, part of our, part of our team thing <laughs> for sure still still nothing better than two people in front of or, or multiple people in front of a whiteboard um <laughs> yeah. one of the best ways of thinking of all time um awesome so let, i want to build on this really quick so um i want to i want to try to do if, if we can do this as a a practical case example to whatever extent that's possible so mm. I really like how you approach thinking about solutions, right? And, and you like looking at the system, like we're talking about and figuring out how the components of the system interact. What are they? What are the forces at play, et cetera, et cetera. I am sure over the years and, and currently you have people who come to you and they're looking for advice or guidance on how to, you know, they're passionate about some issue and they know they want to do something about it, but they don't know what exactly they, there is to do or what they want to do. How do you walk through, walk someone through, choosing the right intervention for them to pursue and then designing that intervention. 
Yeah. Well, once again, that's so different and so unique to every situation. But I feel like um, probably if I was to lay out the most typical process, it would be really talking through what they want to accomplish and why they think it's not already happening. Mm. Um, because if, if it's already happening, then you can support what's already happening. Uh, as an example, when we were designing the good food purchasing program, my first step was to find out, well, is there one out there that we could just adopt? <laughs> if there mm-hmm. was a good one, why reinvent the wheel? There's mm-hmm. enough need to support good things that are going on and we all have lots to do. So, mm-hmm. um, but what we found when we did the research was there was something missing. So what was missing is a bit of, you know, the, the metrics. So what was missing is the verification there was, and there were components, values that were missing. So we added them in, but usually, so once you start, it always to me starts with really rigorous research, finding out what's already happening in the field. Cause sometimes you'll find out as you go through the process that it is already being done. Um, but maybe it needs to be modified a little bit to do a little bit more of what you want. So it's kind of a gap analysis really is what you need to, to get to. And then you need to look at who the players are, like who's, who's creating the most movement in this area that you're concerned about. Where, where are the power structures that are moving things in whatever direction they're in and what would be interesting to them to change how they're doing or what would just sort of make them not relevant (laughs) one or the Mm -hmm. other. So with Mm -hmm. the good food purchasing program, I looked at the power structures and I said, well, how do I get them to shift what they're doing and created something that is making that shift? Um, If you look at a, you know, another company like uh, I guess Airbnb, they did something that was, that started making hotels less relevant Right. They came mm-hmm. up with a model that said, well, they're not doing what we want to do. So we're just going to do something better and make them less relevant. So mm-hmm. but what, what their goal was, was being able to let people use properties. They were trying to solve for that problem that they had that they wanted to get some income from mm-hmm. a good goal. So I think it starts with the gap analysis, looking at the 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 power structures, um, like who's making those moments. And then I think creativity comes from having a lot of good ideas in the room. I usually put a brain trust together, um, of, of good thinkers and start just talking. Like, what do you think about this idea? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it might have one-on-one conversations. I might do it in a dinner party. This is why my friend knew that I was interested in agriculture. Cause I tend to talk about these things at cocktail parties and over drinks because it's always on my mind. So, but there's just mm-hmm. lots of places where um, there's a fertility in conversation that we don't always tap into, you know, mm. and there's lots of, particularly if people have different, uh, work experiences than you do, they're going to be able to bring a lot more, you know, good thinking into the, into the equation. So it's just kind of mm-hmm. fun to get ideas from those places. So research gap analysis, identify power bases and movements, um, intuit to me it's like you intuit your way into an idea um that could solve like what if this happened how mm-hmm. would that change things and then kind of vet it like initially mm-hmm. through the brain trust and then you can refine mm-hmm. what do you think about that that makes sense it's, it's uh it's a, it, it 
like I can, I can sort of see the steps in the cycle, right? It's like clearly a cyclical approach that you're, you're, you're cycling through this, yeah. you know, over and over and over and over. And as you, as you go through that cycle, your thinking is evolving, your understanding yeah. of the gaps are changing. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's, I mean, it makes sense. I think there's, um, is there anything that really makes a difference in that process? Like that makes that process more effective? Cause I think, I think that a lot of that, that makes good sense. Everything you just said, but I'm wondering, um, if there's secret anything sauce. in particular, any, yeah. What's the secret sauce? How do you do it? Well, you know, I, I don't know. I took it. I think I just, um, uh, I think I have a tendency to recognize patterns across sectors. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I know for me, I tend to draw on other sectors. So for example, in working on the food system issues, I started seeing an analogy in my mind between how we were trying to make this change in the food system and what had been happening in the energy sector with renewable energy. And I, you know, I don't know how apparent that was to others, but I know I I saw it. So I started Mm -hmm. thinking, well, how did, so I started researching that, like, how did they, how, how did they get renewable energy to be such a strong force? I sort of started talking to people who did it, right? I learned mm-hmm. from the energy sector what they did. And there were a lot of analogies that I could think of to what we're trying to do in the food system and create a stronger um, local food economy um, that also supports you know, environmental um, and, and nutritional health. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, started moving in that direction for the next stage. So I, I think of that a lot, you know, so I'll draw on that source. There are probably people who think about this in more rigorous terms. I think I tend to follow, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, mm-hmm. um, where he talked about it's sort of what I saw it as is a cultivated kind of intuition, mm-hmm. an intuition that was based on experience. And for me, I think because I am a cross sector person, I've gone from a lawyer representing private sector businesses to being involved in government, to being a nonprofit to, you know, so I start and I've been in water, I've been involved in a bunch of different issue areas. Mm-hmm. When I represented private sector businesses, I represented um, medical companies. <laughs> I, re- I had a lot of exposure to a lot of different kinds of businesses so to me, things sort of line up as patterns that, that you can draw from. So I think it's the learning from um, cross-sector learning that I think is really helpful. So I want to sort of shift gears and, and start to wrap up here with some rapid fire questions. They are short questions. Your answers don't have to be short. You can riff for as long as you like, but hopefully the questions are, are short. Um, so the first question is, you know, this podcast is called Enliven. And my question is, as you do your work and go through through your life, who or what is enlivening to you? What keeps you full of life and doing your work? Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, I wonder how many people have given you the same answer, but it's the people <laughs> that, you know, it's that really amazing spark of human interaction when you see your ideas land with somebody and, you know, you have aha moments together, that's, that's just wonderful and it drives it forward. Um, but also just getting the sense that you're making a difference, uh, contributing to the conversation. A lot of it just feels so much like music to me. Um, you know, when you have music, there's a lot of levels of harmony involved that make it music. And, and that's what I see that that's, you know, 
fun for me and exciting for me and encouraging. And I can sort of ride on that through the rough moments of mm-hmm. knowing that it is making a difference to somebody else. And it's, you know, we're all creating this fabric together, creating this harmony together. Mm-hmm. How corny was that? <laughs> you know, it, it's even, if it's, even if it's corny, if it's true, that's what matters. It's actually true. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, thank you. Yeah, no, I love that. So, um, thinking about that, are there are there any particular, I don't know, mantras or quotes or things like that 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 you know you continually use to keep yourself grounded or inspired, oh, and that you repeat to yourself? Yes. There's a bunch, and you know I have them on my um, my home office tied up. But but one that I really love is, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, therefore, is not an act but a habit. Mm. That's one I like a lot. So mm-hmm. it just reminds me to to not um, to not you know slack off. You know, it's like every every moment matters in terms of the quality of mm. interaction and what you're putting out there into the world. Every moment matters, particularly when it comes to your work. I mean, obviously we can, you know, have our relaxing moments, <laughs> but, um, but you know, the work requires that. And then I love the quote, um, luck comes to the prepared mind. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that's really true. I think that you make your own opportunity. Um, and my mom always loved this quote. Um, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Oh. Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah. Then there's another one that I, <laughs> I can keep going. <laughs> but there was a poem that I I read to her because I really liked it. And she loved it and put it, my mom loved it and put it in her signature line. And it's a, a poem from Amy Gerstler. It's called Advice to a Caterpillar. Um, let's see if I can remember the few, beginning few lines. It says... Chew your way into a new world. Molt, rest, molt again. Self-reinvention is everything. Hmm. That's the line. That's, be- that's beautiful. So it's that, that is beautiful. It's, it's that it's advice from a caterpillar by Amy Kersler. It's that you're always you're always on the edge of your own invention. And every moment has that opportunity. It's part of what I love about L.A., to be honest, living here in L.A., is that I feel like L.A., people have asked me about it when they come from other places, like, what do you love about L.A.? I don't get it. And I think, if you don't get it, you, you, have, you have to live through a reinvention, because <laughs> mm. L.A. is always on the edge of its own reinvention. It never stays in one place. Not, there's, mm-hmm. The only tradition about it is that it changes, mm-hmm. and it's a very it's always becoming. place. It's always becoming. That's exactly mm. right. And so I love are that. we. Indeed. And I think that that is like the perfect place thematically to end this. And, and uh, <laughs> I think this will probably be a part one. And though I think there'll be a part two <laughs> later on. Um, but just as, as a way of wrapping up, I, I have two final questions. Um, the first question is, before I ask my last question, where can anyone listening to this find you online, connect with you, support what you're up to in the world? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I have a Twitter handle, so I'm uh, my Twitter handle is an easy one. It's Paula A. Daniels, and then um, we our website is um, 
goodfoodpurchasing.org for the Center for Good Food Purchasing. Perfect. And, and just actually riffing on this, this will be my question before the last question. Uh, is there any <laughs> requests you have of the listener? Is there anything, if someone's listening to this and has, has felt really inspired by this conversation and what you're up to, what would you ask them to do? Oh, I mean, I would just love to hear their ideas for um, supporting the circular economy in the food system, because I'm sure there's lots and I'd, I'd love to hear them. But, um, you know, supporting our organization um, would be great. Um, learn about what we do, um, but keep the conversation going, I think is the main thing. And to keep the ideas generating and to keep on becoming. I love it. So riffing on that theme, I think you have one of the coolest titles I've ever come across being the chief, <laughs> the, the, the chief of what's next. So yeah. it, with the theme of always being on the edge of your own becoming, what's next for you? One of the things that I want to look at next is our sustainable aquatic food economy. I feel like so much of the work that we've been doing in the food system, very important work, uh, relates to land-based agriculture and separately, we have the folks who work on fisheries um, and sustainable fisheries. We need to marry that up as well as looking at aquaculture because it's a really important force in the world right now. Um, and there's more you know, aquaculture being cultivated worldwide than there is beef production worldwide. But in the United States, we're not doing as much at all. And yet we're consuming an awful lot of seafood. So there's a big opportunity there. Um, and that's what's next for me is I want to start looking at um, how to how to manage the potential growth in that area um, in a way that um, protects the environment, um, provides good jobs and nourishes our people. And I think that it's entirely possible. Um, and I'm really excited to be working on that. I love it. Well, Paula, thank you so much for the time, for sharing your stories, and just uh, really inspired by what you're doing. So thanks, thank you for what you're doing, and, and keep it up. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe, and until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.